0: Welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber.
1: I'm Heather Samples.
2: And I'm Matt Lombardi.
0: Join us this week where we wonder, if nostalgia were a butcher knife, would you use it to cook your family a nice meal? Or to cook your family? I
2: love this woman. I love this woman and I have to tell her... She laughs. She laughs. It makes
1: it easier, easier to be.
0: Feel any better if I ask you to the prom?
1: His name's Blaine. He's so
2: beautiful. Blaine? Oh, that's a major appliance. That's not a name. You
1: won't regret no, they don't forget it. Does he have strong lips? Strong Lips. Love yeah.
0: man, Just don't write love man, songs like they used to. It's, I, I, oh.
1: And tonight's movie is...
0: Isn't she?
1: <laughs> Pretty in Pink. 1986, John Hughes. A movie that I chose because it makes me happier than maybe any movie that's ever been made. Wow. Uh, I know. It's it's a bold statement. And it, it is and it reveals a lot about what a simple, simple person I am. Um <laughs> but but I'm but I'm comfortable with that. I, I own it. I'm I'm okay. Uh let's let's start let's start with just like what happens in this movie. Just thought. Oh my god. Give me the tiniest little summary, Joshua.
0: Um well, it's hard for me to—am <laughs> I supposed to say the plot without also editorializing?
1: Yeah, I, I, I want to—before we get to what the movie is about, like, capital A about, or, like, what its thesis is, I just want to hear, like, basically, what's the, what's the storyline?
0: Okay, I think the storyline is that Molly Ringwald and John Cryer are trash people— who live on the wrong side of the track mm-hmm. and no one would ever give them the time of the day and why would they because they're so beneath thinking about they're lucky they even get to go to this high school but in reality Molly Ringwald at least is I guess cute and therefore <laughs> given passage to uh, hang out with the rich kids. And okay. I think That's, that's, that's kind of going to be my summary for now.
1: All right. Matt, uh, hmm. if, if we add, if we add to that and, and start to talk about like what the movie is actually about, like what it's, what its argument hmm. is, what, what would you say?
2: Harry Dean Stanton has finally escaped <laughs> from New York and woke up <laughs> to a life with a daughter. There's a lot um, to
0: be said about his his performance in this. I think it's I think he might be one of the highlights of this.
2: I mean, he's just a very watchable, lovable. He's great to see on screen. So that was fun seeing him. I just think it's it's one of those um class conscious rich kid, poor kid movies uh, but less complicated because it only deals with white people and um there's some kind of message you're going to tell us later about empowerment through fashion.
1: oh no we are are, (laughs) and I know if I if I let us talk about uh, the technology of fashion for as much as I would want to talk about it we would we would all die in our chairs um, of dehydration
2: I'll never forget your Susan Sontag sweatshirt (laughs) which I can still visually see and I love it the day I saw it I was like wow and I thought about it for a week Uh, what did it say um, again
1: it's it it says uh God, it's been so long since I've since I've worn that sweatshirt. Um, it says something about passion killing good taste. Pa- passion kills good taste. Yes. I don't know. It's like it was some phrase. line from her uh, from her journals. We're not even really sure what she meant by it because it was never part of an essay. And it was just like a decontextualized little line she wrote.
2: I thought it was, it's, yeah, it was something about passion. Yeah. What does it Rooms have to do with
0: this movie?
1: Well, I think what it has to do with this movie is that uh, this is a movie about, on the one hand, like, people with, with so much passion, they can barely, like, contain their emotions, which I think is one of the reasons why it's such a compelling teen movie. Um, because it's really, like, trying to capture and hold on to this, this feeling of just being, like, too muchness in the self, right? Like, everybody who is like a good guy in this movie is just full of emotion. Harry Dean Stanton hasn't gotten over the fact that his wife left him three years ago and he can't move forward as a result. Like Ducky is obsessed with Andy and can barely contain his like profound desire for her. Andy is just like too full of her desires to, to be a full person and a fully recognized person in the world. And even Andrew McCarthy, uh, It becomes a good guy because he he can't he can't not listen to how much he wants to be with Andy. Whereas like on the other side are the people with the good taste. James Spader is like cold, alienating, has no feelings. Short. Uh, (laughs) Also that.
0: Is he short? Oh my God! Oh, There's yeah. a scene where he goes up to Andrew. What's his name? McCarthy.
1: Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. Like Tom Cruise
2: short.
0: Oh my, maybe shorter. I don't know.
2: Wow, the confidence on that
0: guy. He goes up to him in the hallway of the school, and I don't believe that Andrew McCarthy is very tall. First of all, and <laughs> James Spader like walks up to him, you know, like looking up at a mountain. It's it's. We're stunning.
2: gonna get killed on Twitter for the anti-shortness sentiment here.
1: Yeah, I'm all for a. Short they king. won't be able to find this. Uh, James Spader isn't one. I guess
0: you have to accept, I guess that John Hughes is way more interested in signifying that these people are cool than in believing the reality of the characters.: Yeah,
1: because a cool a cool character in a John Hughes movie is a character with a great record collection
2: exactly and that that carries in. I mean that is I've, I've been affected by that yeah. up until now I still I still think like that
1: I do still think like that
2: <laughs> because then I feel like the 90s may have just ran with that even harder.
1: I think that one of the arguments that this movie is making is that, and I think that this is an argument that many John Hughes movies make to a degree is that uh, cool is something that can and perhaps should be cultivated, but it's not something that can uh, be like conjured from, from, from nothing. Um, And I think that what, what a John Hughes movie like this one is saying about every, about the people who are born with the nugget of cool that can be cultivated in the way that Andy and Ducky really craft these identities by like the way that they use clothes and the way that they experience music. Um, That the thing that they have that, that Steph and Blaine and Benny will never have is a, is a, is a certain kind of struggle they're more self-aware of the struggle that they experience, whether it's actually, like, that hard of a struggle is a whole other conversation. But, like, they experience it as struggle, and they are self-aware about what that does to them. When I read the con- the contemporary reviews this week, which I had never done as many times as I'd seen this movie, like, I'd never gone back to see, like, the fuck did Janet Maslin have to say about this back in the day, right? And And when I went back and read it, I was... I was expecting them to be uh, really incredulous about the idea that this could actually be a conflict for two teenagers, that, that we could like conjure this like level of Romeo and Juliet kind of storytelling for something as simple as his family has money and hers doesn't. But it turns out that they were all 100% okay with that. Uh, they, n- no one no one is like really calling out that as like the hell are we supposed to be uh believing as viewers about the class constraints of the American high school but instead what they are like taking issue with is just how formulaic the storytelling is and and to them it it seems like immediately obvious that it's that is a Cinderella story um which I think is kind of funny like i would I didn't ever really think of it as a Cinderella story all these years that it has like completely spoken to me ever since my coolest babysitter showed it to me when, you know, I was eight or nine years old or whatever. Um, And then I immediately like went out and got one of the first uh, tapes that would ever matter to me as a result.
2: I think though, when Molly Ringwald says she she should have ended up with, prince charming she's obviously playing this part as like a neo fantasy movie i still can't believe she thinks that's prince charming though
0: I'd be curious to know whether, you know, a 14-year-old right now is is as moved by this movie as say you were, Heather. But but uh clearly at the time, there was a desperate lack of movies that even attempted to claim to to take teens seriously.
1: Which I think is really a sign of like what teenagers were going through in the 80s right like this is this is the first moment when divorce is like widespread the boomers are the first generation to really do divorce on a mass scale they've they're they're starting to do it and gen x is experiencing like that latchkey situation in a way that feels like very culturally relevant and that a lot of kids Mm -hmm. probably had a lot of anxiety about i mean that kind of makes sense it makes sense to me that it would have taken until the Reagan years and like Gen X's adolescence for Take seriously. Um, for a, a, an emotionally rich exploration of teen interiority to be something that anybody gave a damn about. Yeah, I mean, John Hughes is in his early 30s when he makes this movie in the mid 80s, which means that he's a young boomer uh if if and if he had been any older he would have had other other cultural things to have cared a lot more about right like world war ii um maybe even vietnam but he's he's and he's still young enough that i mean think about having made these movies when you were 32 years old or 29 maybe when the when 16 candles comes out like it's a, its all a very close experience to him, is I guess what I'm saying is like I think he was young enough to, to really still well, care about this and to see it as white space that movies American movies weren't, which, you know there was there was room to fill.
0: Can I? Can I? Uh, this might be a time I might not get to say this another time. The opening sequence where she gets dressed and it like shows like little hints of her panties and stuff like Did that. Do you love it? And then, no, it's it's. I mean I'm an <laughs> adult man. She ste- then, but yet you still say panties. She steps out of the the room after this like close up shots of like her legs and her pulling you know, on those cleavage yeah, or whatever. Yeah, pulling and on then she stocking. steps out and it and it's like a little girl steps out of this room.
1: It's Have you guys ever have f- you guys ever read uh, Molly Ringwald's essay in the New Yorker about her relationship to John Hughes and what it was like to be a young woman working for him? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you can tell when you see that opening scene you're, you you really the, the echoes of that essay are are really on display there
0: as a movie i think it has a lot
1: of weaknesses you
2: want like complex tracking shots down the hallway
1: uh, yes
0: and,
2: and like sweeping sweeping landscapes
0: the list would be pretty long
1: <laughs> yeah i mean one thing i even i would put on the list is like a better more complex story yeah, the story sucks i think that we have we yeah I think that we actually have like really um really some really complex characters and and i think that it you don't have to be uh, a molly ringwald stan to appreciate just how much rich and deep emotion she she shows us in this movie we, we see a really wide range that i think like genuinely captures an awful lot about what it's like to be a teenage girl um there's there's everything from a sense of duty to oneself like she's she's good at studying she she cares about her like performance at school and duty to like family and parents there's like a filial duty that she has to harry dean stanton Mm -hmm. that's like borderline spooky uh and then like she's a stand-in for her mom in ways that are like kind of creepy um and then, there's, and then there's like a, a deep like self-loathing, but there's also like moments of profound confidence. There's anger, there's sadness, yeah. there's longing, there's joy. This- like the whole fucking range is contained in that one character. But somehow the story itself is actually like pretty bad. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> the soundtrack was re-released in 2012 on pink vinyl. Do you have it? You know, after watching this movie yet again for you guys this week, with you guys this week, I I was like, How do I still not own that fucking pink album? <laughs> and I ordered it. I did. I was you like, I, I deserve yes. to own this. Like you should. I I've, you should. Uh, i I am the target audience.
2: We actually spoke of a present. <laughs> we <laughs> spoke of a we <laughs> actually spoke briefly of a present that we were gonna surprise you with and then didn't follow through at all. Amazing. But I was like, Joshua annie potts has a cameo
1: oh <gasps> she does Apparently.
2: what if we got her to promo the podcast and be like hi you're listening to and then joshua's like let's do it how much does it cost and i was like i don't know i'm not signed in and then we forgot <laughs> uh,
0: well, well no it's not just that it's like i don't want to sign into cameo like what do i have to do like I don't why didn't we check blood? Um, i don't
1: know it seems, like, it seems
2: difficult what if it was only? Um, all right. Maybe we'll go back and edit if it's like a hundred bucks. Maybe we should. Annie deserves it because that performance is amazing. But, but
1: I bring up the, the pink, the, like, the, co- the yeah. colored wax vinyl and the reissue in 2012, which was for the 25th anniversary. Uh, to, to just say like, Matt, you just said that this was this has become in the last week like one of your top five 80s soundtracks. It's on everybody's list of great soundtracks. We just took you through the songs. These are like musicians who were truly some of the like finest minds of their generation and 25 years later there's still people loving this movie and loving this music so much that it makes sense to reissue special vinyl for them uh, And I was thinking about that and myself and also this whole like podcast project in the moment when, Andy and Annie Potts are in Annie Potts's apartment. And uh, and Annie Potts, Iona is her name in the movie. Iona is showing Andy uh, her prom dress. And she's got her hair up in the beehive. And Andy's trying to get out of the apartment. She's got places to be. She's trying to leave. And Annie Potts is being, like, super wistful. And, and Molly Ringwald just, like, so gently touches her beehive and says... You're gonna <laughs> right. OD on nostalgia.
2: Oh, here we go. You love this right now.
1: And I, I was like, it. fuck. What Samples, was your you're called? gonna OD on nostalgia watching this
0: movie. <laughs>
2: but you also once called nostalgia a disease. It is.
1: Exactly. It's, a, well, it's you are, really not you are okay. Suffering. And I, and <laughs> I, and this is, a, this movie is one of the things that can like make me just go there really hardcore. I'm
2: not. Yeah, I, this is why I'm not as anti-nostalgia as you are because it's you know nostalgia. It's it's a uh, it's a butcher's knife. <laughs> it's a carving knife. You can make a delicious meal with it, or you can kill your whole family with it. This from a I man like who has a, print of of a typewriter behind him on the wall. Yes, so you know how intellectual and literary <laughs> I am,
1: and also how also, comfortable you are with the past.
2: Um. Yeah. That's true. I actually wasn't picking up on what your insult at first. <laughs> 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 Just to be honest. But I think anyway, but the point is that nostalgia can be both a blessing and a curse, a weapon or a um a, a warm cuddly blanket that's harmless and okay when you're watching Pretty Pink hungover.
1: Yeah, Pretty Pink and feels like to me bathing like bathing yourself a warm, in the cozy, soundtrack. Yeah, a warm cozy blanket of nostalgia to me.
2: Can we Sorry, just I have a logistics thing. I have a question. Just before we get off the Annie Pot scene with the beehive, mm-hmm. can we try to figure out what year is she supposed to be born? Uh, because it's at tough. one point, it's real I looked, tough. <laughs> I, I looked it up. I okay, looked wait, it up because it is so it up,
0: confusing in the movie. Well,
2: she says I'm 15 years yes, older yes, than
0: you. Yes, and then she says it another time. And, I'm old enough to be his, meaning Ducky's mom,
1: even though yeah, Ducky and so, Andy are the same age.
0: Right, so, but, you know, 15 years, So how old is Molly
2: Ring- Ringwald supposed to be, like, 16 or 17? No,
1: they're seniors in high school. Right, so, so she's 17. And it's, and it's oh, she's a senior, season, too. So the end of the oh, you the so they're 18. In my school,
2: well, juniors they me, go to the they were prom. were
0: 17, but, you know, I, I get the idea. <laughs> all
2: right, boy genius.
0: <laughs> I didn't even go to prom, so, you know, I don't even know what all this is about.
1: <laughs> uh, but you cool, can't you genius. can't figure it out. The math doesn't add so, up. Well, yeah, it so does, say when she's you,
2: 17 or yeah. 18. And then if she's 15 years older, that puts her at what 32? No. And then she's, the movie is 1986. No, she's, and she's, she's nostalgic for the 60s. The,
0: the, the movie is actually accurate in Annie Pott's age. I looked it up. And the reason I looked it up is because it's insane when you're watching the movie that this woman who looks maybe two years older than everybody else in the movie is treating them and ta- and they, they're treating her like she's this wizened adult. But the whole time you're like, wait, you're you're 20, you're 21. This
1: is actually maybe an important moment to say that there are really only three actors in the movie who really are teenagers during the filming. That's Molly Ringwald, John Cryer and Molly's friend, uh, Jenna, who is the other sort of sidekick from the wrong side of the tracks who we only see momentarily. Mm -hmm. Who, by the way, I remember her. Uh, who
2: she's like just in the beginning. Really. She's in the.
1: She goes to Andrew Dice Clay's club with them, <laughs> uh, and she's also the girl in the. You just
2: busted up the <laughs> biggest review. And she's
1: also the girl in gym class who smokes a cig. And yeah,
2: but yeah, she's great. The actor is a teenager.
1: Yeah, she is, and the act in the during the filming, oh. the actor. <laughs> The actor who, well, well, she's like, she's very that young. That actor's got
2: to be old. No, no, no. no. I, she's, she, was, would, she was 22.
1: The movie came out after she older. died. She was found. What? Yeah. She was <gasps> found dead in her Manhattan apartment. Causes of death have never been disclosed. Old age. Uh, and and she, and the, and it was, That's it was awful. her last, it was like her last bit of work. Yeah. It was released oh my posthumously. God.
0: That's terrible. That's
2: actually really sad.
0: She's well. Let me say, uh, just you know, for uh, in in memoriam,
1: she's she's good in it. She's great in it.
0: She is very memorable. I I,
1: <laughs>
2: I can't believe I can't believe James Spader murdered her. <laughs> They establish, like, Harry Dean Santa is like, oh, you made a cool thrift shop outfit. You're brilliant at it. So then the whole movie, you're just focused on everyone's fashion and style, which is actually a great gimmick. Because then it, it's, it's fun to, like, you know, and obviously, John Cryer as Ducky is like dialed up to like
1: 11 at least.
2: Insane, insane fashion. I mean, I
1: think that the. Pa- that the- and- the way that fashion is working in this movie is actually very similar to the way that music is working in this movie. Um so so let's like actually turn to the music for a second.
2: The soundtrack um, if you will.
1: The soundtrack if you will. It is extremely distinctive music, right? Like n- it is full of new wave and post punk. It is very much of this like jo- whole John Hughes like milieu. Um what do, what do you guys think of like of that genre of music? Apart from a movie like Pretty in Pink, like, does it, does, do these kinds of songs, uh, what's your gut reaction to these kinds of songs?
2: Okay, this is, I'm Uh going to chime in here because this is what I was going to get to that changed me. I've been playing this soundtrack more than just listening to it because we were going to talk about it, just putting it on the background, you know, and it's a nice, moody fall (laughs) kind of music going on. And I've been enjoying it so much. And, I would say that I think it's definitely top five '80s movie soundtracks out there, and I was trying to think of what the others would be, Repo Man being one of them. But that's the part when I said it changed me a little. I'm putting Pretty in Pink in my like top '80s soundtracks. Joshua, thoughts? It's so good.
0: I, I love I love this music. I love all these bands. I don't. I have some criticisms about how the movie handles the music, but I also have some thoughts on maybe that's my own issue. No, I can
2: I can go the there with it, you. The,
0: the music itself is absolutely great. I love all these bands. I still listen to these bands a lot. OMD's last album is amazing. Let's
2: let's run down some of the bands on it.
1: There are ten songs on the official soundtrack, and of those ten, a shocking number are like absolute works of genius. Um,
0: and, and a shocking number are written specifically for the soundtrack, which is is incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge bands that are like writing songs. Absolutely. Because they got a phone call, I guess, from John Hughes that said, we need a song. And they're like, yeah, we'll give you an iconic. Well, that's actually
1: the very first song on the soundtrack is OMD's If You Leave.
0: And all it
2: time just sa- it sounds like such a yeah. moment. It sounds so definitive. Written, it's just in
1: 24 like... hours for this movie. After the original ending of the movie was panned by test audiences, <laughs> and they had to, and they had to reshoot and re redo the end. And
0: I so hope that we're going to get into this topic at some point.
1: We we will. I promise. All
0: right. There's I didn't an, alternate, there an ending, alternate
2: ending.
1: Uh, which Warner Brothers claims yes. to have lost. Okay. Um, but we'll, we'll get exciting. to the alternate ending it, Okay, so first song on the soundtrack If You Leave, OMD, written for the movie, 24 Hours what your favorite song on this soundtrack is separate and apart from the movie, not your favorite scene with the song, but like actually just the best goddamn song on the album
2: in. The, okay. So just on the album, not, in oh no, movie. no.
1: I, if you, if you want to pick one of the songs that didn't make it onto the soundtrack, if you want to say it's Otis goddamn reading, you go for it, Matt.
2: You see it. You saw where I was going.
0: Or, or, Hey, what about the, or the
1: rave, ups. Does, it could be the rave ups?
0: Sure. Does, those poor bastards, <laughs> those poor bastards had two songs and they performed live Twice. in the movie. Mm-hmm. How exciting <laughs> was that? That they were like, we're going to be in a John Hughes movie on the soundtrack. We performed two songs. And you know what? I listened to them several times today. They're pretty good. They're pretty good songs. They're fine I songs. Them.
1: You just can't really have them compete yeah. with New Order.
0: <laughs> of course. But also, did you have to make the album only 10 songs? Anyway, if I'm the Rave Ups, I'm a little bummed, I think. Maybe even massively bummed. I think it's
1: more than bummed. I I think they're I think they're <laughs> really really dejected.
0: <laughs> the album comes out and you're like, "Wow. We don't have one song like we thought we were going to be really famous now and now yeah. We're just the the house band. So if you want to pick the rave up, Spat, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say, I was, I was going to say just song wise before um, Ducky almost ruins it. Just try a little tenderness as like a monument of a song.
0: Oh, she may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary. Wearing that same old shaggy.
1: She gets weary, trying a little tenderness. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's wow. It's, what a choice. It's I I,
2: wow. I know, it's like the boomer choice, too, right? <laughs> I know, it is. I know.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but I just feel like that song is just such a. He couldn't do that with the other songs because it's kind of the melodic droning synth thing. And they needed just like a emotional breakdown of a song. And that's what that's what that is. But I just think it stands alone. For a song in the movie, um, I think I know it's the title, but I think pretty I think is perfect.
1: came out which came out on their like blockbuster album Talk 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 in nineteen eighty one, a few years before eighties. So the 86th not okay movie. so not
2: written the, not, written for, not the written for the soundtrack.
1: But. The soundtrack the, but John Hughes named the movie after the song and and mm-hmm. like pulled the psychedelic furs in.
0: This is uh, a, we can the, also, this version on the soundtrack is a re recorded version of the original it is. for so it is it, it was not written for the movie, but it is a re recorded version for the movie.
1: That's right, and and the re-recording was done so that it could be just a little chiller, just like a little bit more palatable, uh, maybe a little bit more like conducive to the like slower vibes of the movie. It's just not quite as raw as the original recording.
2: It also fits in a secret genre of soundtracks where it's the song name and the movie name, like. there's, I, I, I actually love when that happens, but Pretty Woman is a really bad example. Is
1: it? Or is it a but, great example?
2: No. <laughs> oh, there's a whole story about how it's a Disney movie and they're like, you have to name it after a song and they thought it was going straight to video. We should do it. We'll have to do Pretty Woman at some point. We will definitely do Pretty Woman. Okay. Gary Marshall's a genius.
1: I think, uh, I th- do either of you know what uh, the Psychedelic Furs um, would tell you Pretty in Pink is actually about? What the phrase means? What it was referring to when they wrote the song?
0: I'm nervous about what you're going to say.
2: I can't wait. It's
1: a, it's about, uh, it's about Caroline being, uh, beautiful when she's naked.
0: Yeah. I kind of thought that might be what you're going to say. I thought,
2: I thought it was going to get more, um, no, it's risque than that. And I learned, I didn't know, not as old. So I didn't know who the psychedelic Mm -hmm. furs were until high school. No idea who they were. And I learned about them through a soundtrack. The clueless soundtrack, which they are not on, but Counting Crow's cover, The Ghost in You. And I was like, wow, this song's awesome. And then I looked it up and it was Psychedelic Fur's original. (laughs) So learning about them from a Counting Crows
1: cover. Okay, guys, that's the end of the that's the end of the whole podcast. every listener and all credibility because we've just revealed that we let someone be one of our three fucking co-hosts who has a shred of of positive regard for counting crows i want to make it very very clear that i do not support any kind of positive regard for counting crows all right over to you joshua what's the best song
0: I mean, there's a lot of songs on here I like. I know.
1: So many good ones.
0: In the movie, in the movie itself, I guess I have... Well, you know what? I think I'm going to go with Bring on the Dancing Horses because it, it when it comes on, it really hits hard, and I wish that it even hit harder, and that's a thing that I don't know if we're going to get to talk about, but I kind of wish that... I hope that we can talk for a moment about how I wish some of this soundtrack hit harder. And I think it made me think a little bit about how I might have some different ideas about soundtracks based on things that have happened since. That's a side note. Um, I'm going to say, bring on the dancing horses.
1: Michael and the bunny moons. bring on the dancing horses. We're so written good. for the movie. I love this written one. for the movie.
0: And it's great. And it's so good.
1: Great.
2: Another solid track, yeah.
1: You know, in the final prom scene when we when we get uh when we get the the new ending with uh if you leave the song that the uh kids were dancing to during the original filming was um was obviously not that song since it came out for the movie it was a different song and it was a song that is also a major John Hughes song can you guess what it was
2: oh it wasn't it wasn't the breakfast club one, it, was it was
1: and in and and in wow. and in fact so so like picture this like you're an extra in this movie you're a teenager you're getting to dance in the prom scene at, in a John Hughes movie and they uh, they they have you dancing to don't you forget about me which is the like <laughs> apotheosis of the Breakfast Club which has come out just a couple of years mm-hmm. before and it was actually like some of the only guidance that Hughes gave uh, to OMD when he asked for the new song was like I need this other tonality because in the end she's gonna go for Blaine. Uh, and also he told them that it needed to be uh, the same beats per minute so that the filming of the kids. So they yeah. can dance. That's yeah. so
2: funny. <laughs> That's great. That is a good. Which is like a was little bit of like in, weird think, uh,
1: John Hughes self myth- mythologizing, right? Like having, having your extras dancing to a song that ha- you've already made wildly famous is a little, it's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. These are these are songs that all deserve uh a, a re-listen on a regular basis. In the shower, on your new Are you giving us your, your favorites? New, no, what's on your, your favorite? new pink vinyl,
2: what's that needle dropping on on that pink vinyl? You
1: know, I think
2: when you first get it.
1: Outside of the movie, it is without a doubt shell shock. Like that is That is the song that I think is like the finest of all of the songs that touches this movie. By the way, is only one of three New Order songs that appear in the movie. Yeah. The other two. New Order's heavy. The other two are instrumentals, um, and they are all exquisite. I think that New Order is like just a mind-blowingly yep. fantastic band, um, and so "Shell Shock" is, is is definitely the song out of all of them that I think is just the greatest song. If I had to be stuck with one song for the rest of my life. But I think that in the movie, it's sure. pretty in pink because because it's it.
2: I agree. That was my yeah. Pick as well. I mean,
1: it like it gives us. I think we're really used to in movies, uh, music acting like a mood ring, like it tells us how the characters feel mm-hmm. or how we're supposed to be feeling, right? It's it's like setting a tone. But I think we're less used to music telling us who a character is, and and i think that the way that the opening scene uh is constructed is telling us who andy is and that the music is a, a like a really important part of that characterization and it's completely arresting it's it's completely arresting to watch this person be yeah. conjured by ugh, the way that she constructs her armor for high school and how she like builds this identity earring by earring, stocking by stocking.
2: Yes. And I thought of the exact inverse around the same time of that opening when I was watching it is, do you remember in adventures babysitting when it's, um, then he kissed me. No, that's don't worry. don't tell mom the babysitter's oh, yeah. dead.
1: Oh yeah, no, Elizabeth Shoe is, is adventures in babysitting. It's
2: Elizabeth Shoe yeah. of course it's, it's Elizabeth like, Shoe's very fun Matt scene already to watch, made clear his flinging Elizabeth Shue love
0: in Cocktail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. If, if if we release the bumpy cocktail episode, that'll be that'll be our B side or unreleased track. Um but Elizabeth Shue is just flinging herself around the room. It's then he kissed me. That's you right. know, she's the pretty yeah. babysitter and it it's like I think a year after or two years after that movie, and I just felt I just immediately thought of that, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is like the perfect inverse mirror, opposite of totally. the the pretty and pink," which is why I think that song resonates too because it's also like feels like a, such a more adult, serious song. Yeah, and just cooler.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: This album is a surprise. I thought there was gonna be like two or three, like. There's like I think one song no, that you, I'd cut. No. Like it's
1: like it's jam packed. Um I Joshua, you asked early on at the top of the hour about like how music is being used in this movie and and I, I definitely want to I want to talk about that. I think that uh, maybe one a way into that is there are at least there there are probably 3 scenes that I think you could say are as reliant on the the music as they are any other aspect of the the movie experience in those three scenes. One is Ducky's lip syncing to Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness in the record shop. One is the prom scene. Everything from uh, Andy and Ducky's entrance to the kiss that Andy and Blaine have at the end. This is If You Leave. And then the third would be is, uh, uh, the opening scene where we're introduced yeah. to Andy to her entrance theme song of Pretty in Pink. And I want to hear from you guys of these three scenes right. mm-hmm. that are so reliant on the sound, which you think is using music most effectively?
2: Hmm. I mean the the two that jump out most to me is the opener. Because, you know, you have the song title, you have the whole vibe and the movie sets itself up instantly and very well and very quickly, especially for, you know, sometimes you watch an 80s movie and it takes a while to get going, but it's just like they do all the definition of her character through her dress, a few lines with the dad, the song playing in the background, boom, you're in. And I was impressed at how like, okay, I'm in this world, let's go. And the song is perfect for it. And then the other one is obviously the insane lip syncing of ducky to try a little tenderness where you wonder if they were going to go with the whole song or not. I would like to know how it's they so filmed long. it. If he killed it. So they're like, okay, we're just going to, cause it goes on really long.
0: It is a very long scene. Very long.
2: And scene. I don't know if that was planned or not planned, but he's just like working it on all ends. Molly Ringwald has to straight faces the whole time and not be impressed. And Annie Potts just gets to enjoy herself
0: Molly Ringwald does not look like she has trouble straight facing things.
2: No, no. But even that, though, I was waiting for her to crack a little, but she's just like deadpanning it. Um, does she ever?
0: Well. Does she ever look like she smiles spontaneously?
1: Mm. In this movie, you mean? Does she ever smile spontaneously?
0: Certainly in this movie, but I, I wonder in other movies too. I mean, she seems like a very—I mean, I guess the nice way of saying it, she seems very controlled. She,
2: you sound like a really mean rich kid that doesn't want to date a guy, so that's, that's, that's
0: Call me Steph. Doesn't she ever smile when she's no, so Steph, pissed about being poor? Steph totally wants to date her. What am I talking about? No,
1: Steph wants to oh, date yeah. Blaine.
0: Oh, oh. okay. Here's another, here's another level, which that, that makes
2: sense. I mean,
1: See, oh, you know what? I have to
2: watch this movie a so, hundred more times. Like <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm eager to get into the missing homosexuality in this movie because I think there's a lot of ways that that is... Uh, makes the movie archaic and and old-fashioned. Yeah. But but maybe we're not there yet.
1: Um
2: No, I think with the ducky thing that's our entry point. Yes, what do you think? clearly.
1: Can I we mean, touch yeah. on it? ducky Cause... is definitely the entry point. Go for it. But Matt. we're
0: but but wait, 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 wait. wait we're not there we, We're not we, there, we, there yet because the because
1: Joshua, you have to tell me which of these three scenes you think you think is like really killing it with the music. Oh,
0: yeah. Um I think Pretty in Pink is a great introduction to the movie, a great introduction song obviously. Clearly, that's the whole point. I mean, there might not even be a movie if it wasn't for that, <laughs> right? It's like the entire idea. Apparently, the guy who directed it, who I think is not a very good director. No, not not a, not
1: a great one. Even and, I would um, say that.
0: He he apparently wanted to have all like a uh, score music, and the score is terrible. The score music is always bad and it's like you <laughs> you have just three new order songs sitting here and you're still <laughs> picking like a slow jazz sax thing whatever
2: it seems very like industry standard right. so
0: it feels like you
2: pull something out of a and box apparently
0: john hughes was like no this is what the movie's supposed to be well, wait, we're gonna we're,
2: i'm still stuck on he didn't direct it. no he yeah, didn't yeah that Did he just he just wrote that shocks
0: it shocks me too because i just always thought it was part of like what he does whatever
2: but did he write I it? He did write
0: it yes and it is a john okay. Hughes production okay. so i guess like it's a george okay. lucas production like He's, george lucas was... made empire yep like he was a pro- he made he was
1: the producer yeah and the writer
0: like it's completely his movie mm-hmm. and so pretty in pink is necessary to it it's clearly the whole point it's clearly the whole idea it's great i love if you leave so like for me that hits really home in a certain way but as we'll probably get to I have some issues with the endings, so if you leave, kind of becomes problematic for me. So for me, I'm going with the opening. Uh, Pretty in pink, Ducky singing that song is cute. I guess I feel like I spent way too much of my life watching people my age who modeled their own uh, romantic efforts off of Ducky, and it's <laughs> just kind of annoying.
1: Yeah, I think also there's there's like looking at it now, the movie feels a. Al- al- there's a little bit of weird kind of like minstrel blackface that Ducky's doing in that extended uh, lip sync that that feels off-putting at, at this uh, moment in time.
0: It's not just in that scene. He literally takes on the accent yeah. of, of the old black yeah, blues singer. The and then at one point, I think he does the gay voice, right? I think
2: that's yeah. the part that stuck out to me more than him doing Which honestly, it doesn't even. He's also a stalker, though. Yeah, I mean, he's. He's also kind of a psychotic stalker who crosses a lot of lines in her life.
1: If you want me, you can find me left of center off of the strip in the outskirts. Well, okay, let's let's talk about let's talk about the alternate ending.
0: Yes. First of please. all
1: for anyone who for anyone who, who doesn't know what the alternate Me. ending was. Right here. Okay. Matt.
0: Which which right. I, I would call the uh correct
1: ending. Ooh. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, she has sex int- with James okay. Spader. All right.
2: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, never mind guys. That's not my fantasy.
1: <laughs> uh no. So the the original ending. Was that Andy actually makes a choice? She uh, she goes with Ducky, and and uh, and she doesn't end up choosing Blaine. And test audiences hated that.
2: Really? Yeah. The movie seems like it's created for her to do that. Like most movies would just say, the weirdo, funny friend is cooler than the boring rich guy who every time you look at him you think of weekend at Bernie's anyway so you can't fall in love with him.
1: And that is a and that is exactly what John Cryer said. He had <laughs> he he felt that the changed ending made no sense. He was he was concerned that the movie would no couldn't hold together if she ends up with Blaine, whereas Molly Ringwald thought it was was very relieved when they when they reshot the end because she thought that a Cinderella story that doesn't end up with prince charming would make no sense whatsoever
2: oh that's see i didn't see him as prince i saw it as a a a realistic ending not a prince charming ending
1: yeah what does he have to offer her not nothing Nothing. he has nothing to say he's not interesting at all it's it's like very clear that that he which is not to say that ducky has anything to offer her but but ducky's not wrong when he says that blaine is just a large appliance
0: I mean, what does Blaine tell her at the end? I love you always. Yeah, that, that part oh, is really well, funny, too. What the
1: fuck, bro? I mean, come you,
0: on.
2: That's
1: first when of you're all, like you don't know what love is. <laughs> Dude, Second yeah. of all, your idea of always is like three weeks. And
0: then when yeah. Ducky says, no, actually, go for him. You're right. He's not like the others, or whatever he says. And it's like, what do you They've basing never that, off? that Yeah, He's treated her like crap. He yeah. immediately succumbed to his idiot friends dumb advice
2: when he takes her to the party after she begs him not to go to the party like seven different times and he's like nope you got to go hang out with my asshole friends and then she's like i told you this would happen and he's like oh i
0: think the ending is the wrong ending because it doesn't earn the idea that prince charming is actually prince charming but the alternative is then that ducky has to be the one and it's wrong in that way too because ducky should not be a heterosexual male and it makes no sense
2: well, that's the thing. So when you watch this movie and you see it again and it's this vague memory. I was watching it with Emily, my wife, and she was like, Oh, Ducky's not gay. She's like, I guess I I guess I haven't seen this in a while. <laughs> you know, and that's just what you would assume. But see, I think what he has to offer is he's free and charismatic and like I think it's very dated, just like the Otis Redding thing. But if I was thirteen or fourteen and it was nineteen eighty six, I would think that was super cool and fun. And romantic and you know, now I'm now I'm rolling my eyes no, on it.
0: Every thirteen year old thought it was the coolest thing in the world. To be able to sing Otis Writing song like to somebody you liked or at, at your church youth group party yeah. or whatever was like the coolest thing possible.
2: See, I was seven at that moment, so this was just not on my radar. These people in this world also seemed separate from mine. The bands, the clothes that all seemed like some older weird kids and then when 1991 hit I was like okay these are my people the ripped oh. jeans crowd who would like never sing Otis Redding so bombastically in public like that kind of thing. They would just like headbang and kick over a record rack or something.
1: And maybe this is where the the conversation about the way that fashion works in this film and the way that music works in this film starts to really come to the fore because I really feel like John Hughes has—he uh, the man was on a mission. He he had a cultural project more than he had an artistic project. I think you could make the argument that that he was more interested in like exploring and pushing American like youth culture to a place that uh, that felt to him like where it ought to be than he was about making like truly fantastic works of filmmaking. And uh, and I and I think that that's one of the reasons why music and fashion are so important in his movies and and in this one which is kind of the like it's like sort of like the apex of of his of his career. Like he's already made Breakfast Club. He's already made 16 candles. Molly Ringwald has become his like muse. We've seen uh Don't You Forget About Me and Simple Minds at the end of Breakfast Club do this like amazing work on the top of the charts and it's like landed this film in this way that really speaks to young Americans at the time. Now he's like moved on to this moment where he can have like his little uh like subcontractor As the director, and he still gets, and now he gets to ask New Order for music and he gets to ask OMD for music and he gets to tell the psychedelic furs that he's taking the name of their song for his movie. Like, he's got a lot of power. Um, I mean, what do you guys think of that? Do you you think I'm right? Do you think he might be like more interested in music in some ways than he is in movies? I think it's a great
0: point, actually.
2: I I half agree. I think he's very interested at giving. teenagers and high school kids the same amount of respect that adults get in movies to like revolve a whole plot around, you know, a love affair, you know, someone who doesn't lo- like we, we took that serious with adults constantly and he dials that in to dramatic teenagers and what you're obsessed with as a dramatic teenager besides each other and friendships and, you know, crushes and stuff is music And is what you're wearing to a certain extent. And I think then he just it's like, I don't know if he found the music thing through the teenage thing or if he found the teenage thing through the music thing, but he definitely captures the like intensity and identity you build around your taste of music. Um, if, you know, in high in school. this movie,
1: we get so much diegetic music, like we're hearing the music that the characters themselves are hearing in their world, as opposed to music that's happening externally to their to their reality. Um, and and I and I feel like that's that's part of the like emotional immediacy of the movie too. Is how how often we are like put into the room with Andy and Ducky and Iona and the music that they, are, um, that they are experiencing is the music we're experiencing. Uh, here, here's another question for you in a completely different category. It's still in this idea of like cool and teenage cool. And, and I think one of the ways that like mm-hmm. the music is helping to distinguish uh, teenage cool from teenage not cool, is by like helping us to characterize these people, right? Like Andy and Ducky listen to cool people music in a, in a way that uh, Benny, <laughs> Steph's girlfriend and Steph do not, right. Um, and and part of that, I think, is like Steph and Benny,
2: yeah
1: and, and their whole crowd, they, they all seem like uh, artificially aged. Right. Like when we get these scenes of like Steph in his parents home, he's like sitting behind the desk and his dad's like fucking wingback chair. And uh, and and when Andy comes to the party, one of the idiot girls there says, like, nice pearls. It's not a dinner party. But it's like, actually, bitch, you're the one who looks like she's dressed for a dinner party every day at school. Andy is not. Uh, <laughs> Andy understands that uh, Madonna has style, as she explains to Blaine at the record store. Um but there's this, there's this kind of like celebration of teen culture as being a, a site of cool that like the the uncool yeah. teens who will never be cool have, they've somehow like skipped over that and they're all older.
0: So this, this leads me to a thing that I was thinking about a bit, which is that I love, I do love the beginning. I love what you're saying about Pretty and Pink being um, powerful in the moment that it happens. And... I missed the power of a lot of the other songs and I missed throughout that. I was like, why, why are the songs so short? And it made me think of a thing that I was thinking during cocktail too. Why, why is don't Mm -hmm. worry, be happy. Why is it so short? Right. And it makes me wonder if this whole thing that is happening now where songs like, because of the Marvel movies or whatever, where songs play such a huge role, like a huge role where they actually will play like the whole song and define entire scenes by a song has poisoned my brain to the point that Yeah. I'm like, why isn't why aren't you using this song more? You've got a new order song. That's a that's a good I missed you had a Smith song. You had the rights yes. to a Smith song. I missed it. I watched the movie, I missed it. I would have loved to have seen Ducky Cry to a Smith song, but I didn't even notice it when it happened.
2: But I think there's a golden age of soundtracks, and we'll have to talk about this some episode that happens like in the mid nineties. Where the soundtrack is almost as important as the movie, and they're both like defining each other. You know, and songs become parts of movies that are these songs feel like you can separate from them from the movies because they're part of that world. Um, even Pretty and Pink, but that was on an album like a few years before that. But songs become more inseparable from movies in the nineties when soundtracks I think truly right. become king. But we can argue about that in another episode. I
1: don't I don't know about that, Matt. I like I agree with you that that is the golden age, but at the same time, I think that I'm thinking of the Pulp
2: Fiction soundtrack when I say that.
1: And of course you are, <laughs> right? Like we we know you're thinking of that cuz cuz that's the that's the one, right? That's the right. That's the one that like opens right. this that's the one where Tarantino is saying to everyone, "Oh, you think you're cool? Well, how about if I show you how fucking cool I am and right. then I let you ride my coattails with your little CDs." Right. Right yeah I think what John Hughes is I think what John Hughes is doing is like uh, it's, it's a <laughs> prelude to to that like golden age moment but it's but it's equally like it wrapping up the the efficacy of the movie in the efficacy of the soundtrack and it's equally self-aware about how important it is to the viewer to feel cool through the music of the movie um. Mm -hmm. And I think that the difference is that like John Hughes is just a little more generous about it than Tarantino. Well, Tarantino is like, I
2: dare you to listen to the song without thinking of my movie again. You know, yeah. John Hughes is like, you can have this too. We can, we can share this. That's what John Hughes is saying.
1: Yeah.
0: And, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that I kind of wanted a little bit more of that Tarantino music in the movie. And I feel really guilty. A little more
1: big dick energy from <laughs> yeah. the order.
0: I really, I really feel guilty saying that out loud because now that...
2: I think Scorsese does a good balance. Well, well he'll obviously. give you a song. It's oh, perfect obviously. for it. No, but I feel like he's not shoving it down your throat as much as Tarantino yes, I is. I think Scorsese does and he's a good not good job as... at a lot
0: of things. <laughs> <laughs> I agree hey, do you. I agree guys with think?
2: You. do you guys think Scorsese is good at making movies? Oh, yeah.
0: Uh,
1: not <laughs> as no John
2: Hughes. Not as good as John
1: Hughes. Yeah, exactly. For a change See the look I've had can make a good man turn back. So please, please, please let me let me let me let me get what I want this time. You guys, uh, I think we, I think we know the answer to this question. But but I got to ask it. We've promised ourselves we'd ask it. Which is better, the movie or the soundtrack?
2: I can't say it fast
0: enough.
2: <laughs> the, sa- the soundtrack.
0: I wish I could have said it faster than you, the soundtrack.
2: <laughs> I mean, John Hughes, I think you hit it on the head. I just want to reiterate it. John Hughes' movies are bad filmmaking. But there's something about the culture and the characters that work and make them very watchable. I didn't like this
0: movie at all. I didn't find it watchable. I actually did not enjoy this movie. I can tell. Um, But I also completely agree with the point you're making. And I do remember the important impact that it had at the time and think that, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm watching it now as a person who just like wants to see like the craft of a movie and the effectiveness of a movie being crafted. Well, it's not doing that. But I think you're right. It probably doesn't give a shit about that. It's not asking me to see it that way. It's
2: definitely not its motivation. No, it's not and it. I think
0: and I think that what it is trying to do, it's clearly successful in. Obviously, as time has proven, as money has proven, as success has proven, as everything can have proven, and uh, the soundtrack's amazing, amazing, and the fact that he got all these people to write original songs. Like the best bands ever to write original songs for your movie. Tarantino wasn't getting that. <laughs> was, no, no,
1: no, he wasn't. Uh, so that, guys, is pretty in pink. I'm so glad that you uh, watched my all-time favorite movie with me. And next up is going to be Matt's pick. Matt, do you know what uh, yes. Joshua, what journey Joshua and I are stupidly coming along? Yes, nuance?
2: and you're, you're not going to be happy.
1: I'm not, or we're not.
2: I think you're both not going to be happy, but okay. this podcast needs some parameters. Okay. And I believe. And we're we need looking to, to discuss, Matt Lombardi
1: to lay down the law. <laughs> we,
2: we need to discuss the dawn of compilation soundtracks, which I believe may have happened in 1983. Oh. And was. We all knew you referenced were going to pick this.
0: We all knew you were going to pick
2: this. And referenced by Annie, Annie Potts. That's why I'm picking it. And Andy Pot's character Iona it references the big chill yes and we gotta we're just gonna get the big the boomer critique out of the way because that's gonna play into a lot of these uh, soundtracks they're you just wanna, lingering you
1: wanna so know you gotta it? watch
2: it you gotta listen to it and then you have to dance around doing your dishes cleaning the kitchen you was play it. a <laughs> 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 and it's not only gonna be what's your favorite song it's gonna be who would you have slept with if you were in that house that weekend
1: Hey Matt. I've never seen the big chill. Yes.
0: (laughs) Come in where there's music. Come in where there's laughter. Come in and share
1: the warmth, spaghetti,
0: and wine. Oh, you know, I forgot what this is like, Getting away from you people is the best thing that ever happened to me. If you feel any of these symptoms, it's about everything. Uh, uh, suicide.
2: Alex and I made love the night before he died. It was fantastic.
1: Despair. You don't know anything about me. For 15 years, you've acted like I'm the one you really wanted. you made sure that everybody knew it. Uh, where did our hope go? We lost hope. That's it. Lost hope. It was easy back then. No one ever had a cushier birth than we did. It's not surprising our friendship could survive that. It's only out here
2: in
0: the world that it gets tough. You may have contracted the big chill.
1: I know, but I'm telling you, I think I've got something good right here.
0: The new stars of the 80s in a comedy for all times. Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt,
2: Kevin Kline, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, Joe Beth
0: Williams, Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill. In a cold world, you need your friends to keep you warm. Well, ain't that the truth? For Heather and Matt, this is Joshua, and we'll see you next episode.